before we dive into the video, just full disclaimer, none of this is legal advice. We're sitting, just happen to be sitting here with Jeff Welsh, who is a lawyer, and we're having a conversation, but none of this is legal advice, and you need to go get your own lawyer. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> and and uh, no, all, all I would say to that is that, you know, look, we're here to help. Um, the WebJoint team is here to sort of educate you on the space as much as we possibly can, but um, it's important to understand that Every situation is unique and nuanced specifically, um, and that we're absolutely here to help. So feel free to reach out to the WebJoint guys or, or myself and our team, and uh, you know we'll be able to help you. But please understand, you know we're going over all this at a very high level, um, and there's lots of nuance in every specific situation. So, yeah. What is up all of you cannabis aficionados? In this week's episode of Connecting Cannabis, we have probably one of the most multi-talented people on the face of this planet. Jeff Walsh is an attorney by day and a DJ saxophone player by night. Yes, you heard that correctly, and yes, he's pretty badass. But don't let the party side fool you. Jeff means business and built his cannabis law empire by representing some of the largest customers in the cannabis industry. Today, he's here to break down the complex laws behind cannabis deliveries, and as a bonus, he's even going to touch on how you can start your own cannabis company without even having a license. Did I miss anything, Jeff? No, thank you so much, <laughs> man. Uh, pleasure to be here and uh, excited to chat today. Of course. Absolutely. So I always like to start by asking, sure. how did you get into the cannabis industry? I went to uh, law school in 2010 at uh, Pepperdine in Malibu um, with the intentions of becoming a music entertainment lawyer. Um, and it was in 2010 that I met the co-founder of my law firm, Luke Stanton. Um, we ended up being roommates through law school. Um, and he uh, turned me on to the industry at the time. Um, you know, back in 2010, there was no such thing as starting a, a legal cannabis business. Um, essentially, the role as a lawyer was form entities for your clients and keep them out of jail. Um, you know, we saw what was going on in Colorado, Oregon, and Washington at the time, um, and we sort of set our sights on post-graduation, you know, starting a firm that was really focused on growing new businesses, working with businesses, and sort of acting as a general counsel, um, and anticipating the rush of what was going to be, you know, the, the legal California cannabis uh, business in California. Nice. So 2010. 2010. I don't even know if you could call that an industry <laughs> back then in California. I mean, we've been in it since... Uh, 2014 maybe and I thought that was like ancient absolutely definitely a little more like the Wild West those days but a lot of those clients um, who are now major brands in California and throughout the country frankly um, you know already had a foothold in the industry back then um, and so having that context I think for me in particular and our, our, our team of lawyers really gives uh, some unique value um, you know to our clients because of the experience and time we've had in the California industry specifically gotcha yeah uh, you know everybody take notes you know like Every time I feel like it's like a recurring theme when I do an interview with somebody that's successful today, is they made their, their, their bets properly when it mattered. Sure. You know, it's like you bet on an industry that you believed in and the industry matured and developed until what it is now. Absolutely. And now you're in a position of success because of it. Absolutely. No, I appreciate that. So who are your uh, typical clients look like today? Sure. Um, you know, we are currently the largest um, California-focused law firm that focuses on the hemp and cannabis space. Um, so our clients, we sort of represent someone in almost every facet of the industry. We represent retailers, distributors, uh, delivery services, um, ancillary companies, uh, cultivators, obviously, manufacturers of products, entertainment properties, um, tech platforms like yourself, um, and, uh, and also people that uh, don't touch the plant, additional ancillary companies as well. 
And who were some of the first clients that you had when you decided to kind of take the leap into the cannabis industry? Sure. That was really, you know, the, the differentiator for us was who we started to work with. So we formed the firm in uh, 2015 um, after I had spent two years as a lawyer at William Morris Endeavor, which is a large talent agency in Beverly Hills. Um, you know, our first three clients really sort of set um, set the standard for who we would start to work with, and I really think helped us begin to establish a reputation um, for working with the best and brightest in the industry. So our first three clients were Henry's Original, um, MedMen, and Ease. Um, MedMen and Ease, we still have a wonderful relationship with. They've just grown so uh, so tremendously over the past couple of years that they've brought legal in-house, but we still maintain you know a wonderful relationship with them. Nice, very yeah. impressive. Thank you. So we know like in the city of LA at least, there are a hundred retail licenses yes. that are currently available. Sure. And there's gonna be another 150 coming out next year. That's correct? Absolutely, that's correct. Yeah. Okay. So they haven't set a date for that second wave of uh, 150 yet, because um, we're sort of dealing with this phase three process, which will happen on September 3rd. And I think the best practical advice I can give to all of our clients um, who's applying for phase three is get the best possible ethernet <laughs> connection that you can afford, um, because it's gonna be on a first come first serve basis specific to when the applications are reviewed, but it's not a physical in-line application process. It's gonna be electronic only. Um, and the difference in you know, five minutes of turning your application in um, could potentially be the difference in you know, whether you're number 10 or number 100 in the reviewing process. And so it sounds silly and goofy um, to invest you know, in, a, in a fast internet connection, but that's actually gonna be a crucial uh, distinction you know, in, in potentially the success of, of when that application gets reviewed. Okay, that's actually perfect. Yeah. Because uh, you know, I kind of came in assuming that the big guys they have their legal representation already. Sure. They have that part figured out. Sure. So I kind of wanted to answer some or get some questions answered sure. for the smaller guys. No problem. Sorry, game. Absolutely. Of All course. Right, let's do it. So I guess let's start with the basics. What do you need to prepare for in order to apply for a cannabis license? Sure. I think uh, you know. First things first. I get a lot of calls from people who ask me that question. Um, you know, understand which actual license type you're applying for, right? That's sort of the, the ground zero. Um, so, you know, whether it's cultivation, manufacturing, uh, distribution, uh, testing, uh, retail or non-storefront retail, um, that's the starting ground. Once you know which type of license or group of licenses you want to apply for, um, you then have to find a municipality, a city, um, that is issuing those types of licenses specifically. Um, that search in and of itself, you know, LA County has 88 cities alone in its county. You know, the, the state of California has nearly 300 different uh, municipalities, most of whom still have cannabis banned um, altogether. Um, and so that actual search to find the city that is operationally desirable for you and also, you know, is issuing the types of licenses you're seeking um, can be a bit of a process and a time process. So once you've identified type, and area, then you have to find a building that uh, the landlord is either willing to sell or lease to you um, for the express purposes of um, you know the license that you're going to be applying for. Um, and so you want to check. Um, you know, each city has its own rules specific to what types of businesses and, and, and what types of businesses can be there, and what types of zones those businesses have to be in. Um, and so that's sort of a, a multi-step process. Once you get to that point um, and you have either a lease in hand or like some type of an agreement, like a letter of intent or memorandum of understanding to have that building leased or purchased, um, if that license is awarded, then you can actually begin the application process locally. Um, 
once you have a local license in hand, um, at that point you then have to apply for the state license. You need both the local license and the state license in hand in order to legally operate in the state of California. Okay, and from my understanding, local is kind of like the challenge, right? Sure. And then sure. once you have that, then the state is more like, a, you know, it's more understanding that if the local government says it's okay, then we're probably going to say it's okay as well. Yeah, you know, I think I think it's a, that's an interesting point because... At the local level, it's more challenging to actually find the license, right? At the state level, once you have that local in hand, you can apply. But the challenges that the state's dealing with right now are just frankly bandwidth and, and, and being completely overwhelmed with the amount of licensed activity that's taking place. And, you know, applications at the state level are several hundred pages, right? And so when you have a relatively new um, group of people who haven't dealt with cannabis or cannabis operators before at the BCC, um, they're doing the be their best, but the reality is they are short-staffed, they're overwhelmed, and this is far from a perfect process still. You know, a lot of kinks are still being worked out. Um, and so the local, the local license ends up being somewhat easier, but the state license actually ends up taking a lot more time to process and receive. And is it true that your license is attached to the facility? Depends on the city. Um, and so, uh, you know, the, in, in certain cities, the, the license will run with the, run with the land, um, which means that it's actually attached to the, the actual building it's on. Um, in other cities, the license will run with the person or the entity that the license is attached to. And so, again, that's uh, sort of a city-specific question, um, which, you know, is, it's a patchwork all over the state. Yeah, you know, a lot of them yeah. will be kind of city-specific because it does yeah. range so much, like, you know, what one city says is definitely could be much different than what another city says. Absolutely, absolutely. And I have heard horror stories of people having to, you know, buy the property, yes. right? Like millions of dollars of property before they could even apply for the license. Yes. Because they're afraid if they rent it or, you know, lease it and they're gone, you know, they want to leave one day, they just, you know, that landlord now has that license they worked so hard to get. Exactly, exactly. And, I, you know, we've run into multiple unfortunate situations where the city requires that the license, you know, is actually that they show an actual current lease or purchase, uh, you know, of the property itself. Um, the challenge there is that, you know, for better or worse or for a result of a partnership breakup, things don't work out. And now all of a sudden our clients find themselves, you know, having a valid lease in hand for five years or purchasing a building that depending on where it is, right? If you own a building in Los Angeles, it's probably gonna have some non-cannabis upside, right? But if you own a building in you know, the, the high desert, right? Desert Hot Springs, Cathedral City, that building may or may not have you know, non-cannabis upside on the real estate side of things. So it can be a really, really tricky um, you know, process to maneuver. Um, and you, know, you need to sort of make sure that uh, that speaks to the importance of the team, understanding the vision and, and having good relationships with people like your landlord because um, that can be a critical um, moment of either success or failure. Yeah, that sounds like a nightmare, man. But, <laughs> you know, you're one of a thousand applicants sure. and all thousand people had to get the property. Yes. But just statistically speaking, maybe 10%, 5% are going to end up actually getting that license. So sure. what do you do with the five-year lease after that? Sure, sure. No, and that's where, you know, I would really, you know, what, what I always sort of general advice to my clients, you know, when they begin this process um, is try to ensure, try to have a backup plan, right? With everything, and that's like good advice generally, right? But, um, you know, uh, for these properties, you know, if it doesn't work out, you know, try to ensure that, uh, and, and it could work out for, not work out for a multitude of reasons, right? A lot of times it has nothing to do with getting locally licensed or state licensed. It has to do with the partnership and the investor dropping out or their operators no longer getting along and so they split up. Um, and so it's really, really vital to ensure that that asset has some type of secondary value outside of cannabis. 
unless you know, unless you've already done this process before and you know you can execute, right? In which case, you know, that, that, that secondary plan isn't as vital. So on that subject of partnerships, I'm actually seeing a lot of cities, and again, it's city specific, right. um, but some cities are doing this whole like social equity sure. applicant thing, right? They're going the social equity route. Can right. you explain that a little bit? Sure. I mean, you know, at a high level, the goal of social equity programs, you know, most notably in Oakland and Los Angeles right now, um, the goal is to repair decades of um, wrongdoing um, that the war on drugs and cannabis has, um, has resulted in, in people of color, um, poor people, um, and, and people who live in urban communities. Um, and so the goal of these programs is to begin to repair those decades of wrongdoing by helping to ensure that people um, who are poor or have been arrested for a cannabis-related crime um, who, or who live in you know, high, high population density, low-income areas um, also receive the benefit of this new licensing regime um, because in, in large part, you know, our industry stands on the shoulders of these people who are willing to take the risk back in 2010, right, when I started working in this space where there wasn't legitimate cannabis business and frankly, it was just, you know, we called it earning your stripes, right? If you were a cannabis operator from 2010 to 2017, um, it was almost inevitable that you were going to face some type of issue with the law, whether or not you were uh, operating in a compliant fashion at the time. Um, and so that, that's the goal, right, of these programs. Um, implementing that goal effectively is extremely challenging. Um, and, uh, you know, we're seeing sort of substantial delay, certainly in, in the city of L.A., as a result of them realizing just how complex, um, you know, doing this program properly is. Got it. So it's essentially, you know, if you were somebody that um, went to jail or, you know, kind of faced consequences because of cannabis in the past, sure. when it was quote-unquote illegal or gray sure. market, and now all of a sudden they decide, hey, it's completely legal and kosher, right? right? That's completely unfair to you as a person, right? So that's kind of, you know, uh, certain cities' way of apologizing for that. Sure, sure, or beginning to rectify. Look, I don't think it's anything that they can just say, like, here's a license, everything's okay now, right? But it, it's, it's, I think, it acknowledging, right? Like, where we're at with our country generally right now, I think a large part of all of this just, just boils down to acknowledging of the wrongdoing, right? And, 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 and going from there. Right and and starting to address that as, as well as we can, um, and you know just like the, the cannabis program at, at a state level at a high level to me is going to take you know years and years to actually in, implement and, and effectively be implemented in the way that we all thought it would be immediately, um, you know and 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 for these programs uh, with social equity I, I see it following a similar path, you know uh, of it taking you know years for this to really meaningfully get to a point. Um, that the program is running the way that the city um, and the people who support, um, you know, these programs think it should be. Um, it's just it's a process. Yeah, definitely. Can you explain that a little bit more in detail as far as the social equity applications go? Sure. So in the city of L.A. specifically, in order to qualify as a social equity applicant, um, you know, you need to have been either arrested um, for a cannabis-related uh, crime in the past, um, and li also live um, in a low-income area uh, of the city and need to be able to prove that. Um, specific to the actual 
application itself and the ownership of the social equity license um, sort of falls into several tiers. Um, you know, you either need to own 50% uh, of, the, of the actual uh, license that you're applying for, or there's another tier that only requires you to own 33% of the license you're actually applying for. Um, you know, one of the, the, the pieces of information I'll be giving you, which I'm sure will be available um, online, will be a specific breakdown um, of the list of um, requirements that you need um, to have prepared and ready in hand um, on September 3rd if you're a phase three applicant. Um, you know, that includes things like a, a premises diagram, a valid lease, um, and other things, all of which will be, you know, available to everyone yes, watching. Yes, definitely. On that note, you know, webjoint.com, if you go in, you put in your email, Jeff and his partners have graciously kind of given us a list of, uh, you know, what you need, you know, application requirements for social equity specifically. Sure. Uh, so we'll have that available on our website. So what it seems to me is that, you know, a lot of this is very, very like city and or county specific. That's correct. So that's, you know, rule number one, know the city, know the county. Yes. Are there any other like kind of jurisdictions that you're dealing with? Um, you know, like water and power, do they care, you know, so on and so forth? Sure, absolutely. Um, you know, so, you know, you're going to have to deal with, uh, you know, depending on the jurisdiction, they might have rules for a CEQA analysis. This is like essentially an enviro environmental impact report, um, most of which is particularly relevant to cultivators, right, who have greenhouses and things of that nature. Um, you know, you're also going to have to deal, you're going to be dealing very intimately with an architect on the build out of, of, of your facility um, because, you know, you need to make sure that uh, you get uh, approval on all the coding from the fire department, um, from the Department of Water and Power, um, and, and other uh, associations like that. And how much time does this process usually take? You know, that's a great question. Uh, one I get asked a lot. Um, at the local level, I'd say if you're moving extremely quickly, right, and extremely quickly means finding a municipality who's viewing the cannabis industry as a bit of a financial savior, right? Um, you know, I usually estimate, you should estimate if you have everything in hand that we talked about before, you know, four to eight weeks before that local license has been processed and turned around. Um, it's really the state, as we sort of touched on earlier, that, that takes longer. Um, you know, once you have that local in hand, when you go to apply for a state license, you know, you usually need, you know, my team would need, you know, anywhere from four to six weeks to prepare an application to submit at the state level. And then could be anywhere right now from, you know, three to seven months um, is what I'm seeing. I know that's a huge, um, you know, sort of gap in time, but the reality is the sort of state's bandwidth ebb and flows. Um, there are certain periods of time, you know, just in the calendar year that are more particularly busy or people are looking to uh, apply faster. Obviously, with this wave of Los Angeles licensing, you know, once, this, once these phase three licenses have been fleshed out and have been received, the state's then going to get hit with a flood of state applications, right? And so that would be a particularly bad time to apply for a license if you weren't in LA, you know, at the state level, um, would be, you know, post everyone receiving, you know, local licenses in LA. Right. It's going to be particularly busy. Right, right. Yeah. And apart from the time, how much money do you think people should be budgeting for this process? Sure. Great, great question. I get asked that probably more frequently than <laughs> anything else. Um, you know, the legal cost, which I'll go into, is a fraction, really, of the overall cost. Um, a lot of the costs that you're, a lot of the sort of sunken costs that you're going to be looking into are non-refundable application uh, fees, you know, at the local level and at the state level, um, as well as, you know, working with an architect and a design build out. Again, this is more specifically for larger facilities, right? It's not as relevant for, say, you know, a delivery service, right, who might only need a 2,500 square foot, uh, you know, room, right, to sort of house all of their products in. But um, if you're building, you know, a 250,000 square foot greenhouse, the cost of 
the materials and the architect to design that um, is going to be exorbitant. I usually say a great figure is around $250,000 all in. Um, you know, that's from soup to nuts, um, beginning to finish. I've seen clients get it done for less than 50000 but they brought, they brought a lot of... Um, you know, they brought a lot of things to the table that helped cut their costs down. Whether they had an architect on their team or a lawyer on their team, uh, things like that can really cut costs. Um, you know, our side of things, like I said, is a fraction of that. You know, usually at the local and state level combined, um, all in for legal services like us um, ends up being somewhere between you know fifteen and twenty-five thousand dollars all in. Now, again, there's exceptions to that because certain clients bring, uh, you know, have have people on their team that they'll bring to the table who've already prepared standard operating procedures and things like that which are required for the local and state application in which case you know obviously we're willing to work with them and, and help ensure uh, you know that we're reviewing their application but we're not actually drafting and so again there's a range there um, but I would say legal ends up being 10 to 15 percent of the, the cost of the, the whole project. And this is assuming that they don't even have to like buy the property right because if they Correct. do Important caveat, or yeah. uh, for sure, um, you know that figure is without real estate, you know, included from a purchase perspective, right? Um, vast majority of real estate you're looking at in the state is going to cost you seven figures easy, right? And at that point, there's usually um, you know an investor on board, unless the the client or uh, the applicant you know is is self funded. Um, but at that point, you know, if you're going to be purchasing uh, real estate tack on seven figures, you know, to that $250,000 amount. Got it. Or eight figures, depending on the, <laughs> depending on what the location is, right? But yeah, that's a whole, that's sort of a, that elevates the cost of the projects significantly. And then once you finally have this precious license of yours, right. are there costs to maintaining it? Absolutely. I mean, you know, um, you know, it, it's a lot easier once you receive the license, a lot easier to keep it than get it. Um, you know, there are, you know, the, 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 the Bureau of Cannabis Control has um, allowed themselves the ability to sort of stop by and check in, you know, at their leisure with or without notice. They're really allowed to just come in and check it out. So it's important that um, you're, you're sort of running a shop that actually follows the standard operating procedures that you said you're going to follow. Um, otherwise, you could be subjecting yourself to fines, suspension, or you know, uh, rescission of your license altogether. Um, you know, there's also uh, sort of annual you know renewal fees um, a lot of times at the local level. Um, but again, once you have that in hand, um, you know, working with like a platform like yourself to ensure that compliance is happening on a daily basis is the most crucial thing. Um, and I think that that would avoid scrutiny altogether at the state level because the state is so sort of buried in application. Um, they really only have time to pursue operators who are just blatantly illegal right now. Now that's going to change um, as it should, you know, once the, the once the Bureau, you know, gets uh, uh, you know, more well capitalized from the, the success of this program and tax revenue starts to become a little more meaningful. Um, but until then, um, you know, do your best and I think overall you avoid, you know, uh, unnecessary scrutiny from local or state government. Nice, nice. And thank you for the shameless plug. Sure. You know, webjoint.com, <laughs> you know, stay compliant. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs>
is I see two things. You know, I see people chasing like shiny objects, right, and not really focusing on executing a specific vision on a specific timeline, or not holding themselves or their teams accountable to executing um, things efficiently um, in order to get to a specific goal. You know, there's so much. Um, wonderful activity in this space and so much interest in this space um, that I see a lot of clients pursuing a license and then we'll just completely get distracted with an entertainment you know opportunity or you know having a celebrity ambassador attached to their brand or chasing um, something that's a little a little more far-fetched and in the interim they're not executing the whole reason why they had that conversation in the first place um, so I see a lot of sort of chasing shiny objects and I see a lot of people, you know, for better or worse, um, uh, you know, we call it, we call it getting married before you date, right? Um, you know, a lot of times the culture of our space uh, sort of requires operators to partner up with investors. And a lot of times those two communities of people come from very different cultural, political, social backgrounds, um, you know. Investors see an operator who's successful and see dollar signs. Operators see an investor who's got who can stroke a check, and they think that's their easy path to you know being successful operationally. Um, making sure you uh, you know can work um, and, and have spent some time uh, you know working with you know your potential partner is crucial um, because more. I wouldn't say more often than not. I would say more than you might realize. Almost fifty percent of the time, you know these projects fail not from you know, a lack of you know, not submitting their application or not being able to get the funds ready for their application, but because the two parties that are sort of coming together to run this business ultimately are not a good fit for each other. Um, and a partnership breakup, particularly once you have assets in hand collectively, can get very expensive. It's like a messy divorce. Got it, yeah, so it's not just you know, money's money and that's important. Right. You need that to operate the business but you should also make sure you get to work with that person as a culture fit. You know, that that's so crucial because in our space right now, look, if you have a good business plan and you have a quality team um, and you have a very focused vision as to what you want to achieve, you can get money from a lot of places now, right? I mean, the, the industry is white hot, right? Whether it's hemp or cannabis, right? That This is our moment in time, right? And the, the even like more, you know, right, we're seeing more like corporate and high level family office and even private equity group investments coming into the space. Whereas seven to 10 years ago, simply high net worth individuals investing into the space, right? There wasn't any institutional money coming in. For we're, sure. we're starting that, we're starting to see that change. Um, and that just emphasizes the importance of that cultural fit. You can go get a check in a lot of places now. So just make sure that check is not only a good culture fit, but ideally has a complementary value add you know, to your business, right? If you want to start uh, like a house of brands, right, and you want to like run a white label business, well, it would be great if your investor could not only write a check, but came from the consumer packaged goods space, um, you know, in food and beverage, right, and already had experience in developing, selling, marketing, advertising brands successfully, right? And so finding that culture fit and finding that complementary value add, you know, just a, a check writer um, is not that hard to find these days, right? Particularly if as an entrepreneur and owner of your business, you're out there in the marketplace going to web joint events, you know, networking with other people, you know, meeting um, other people in the industry. I haven't seen a single operator client of ours or any client of ours who sought investment um, 
if they were working hard to achieve that and, and getting out there and networking and had all their ducks in a row specific to presenting a business plan, presenting an executive summary, you know, having a quality team in place, I haven't seen any one of those operators fail to get investment. So it's, it, now, now's the right time. You know, just, uh, you know, it's important to, to find that. Thing. I want to transition this into more of like delivery specific questions, sure. you know, because we are a delivery specific company. Yes. Uh, we actually kind of reached out to our clients and we asked them like, if you're in front of a cannabis lawyer, what sure. kind of questions would you want to ask? Sure. So let's do it. Have at it. Let's go. All right. <laughs> um, so to set the stage, can you explain the different types of uh, delivery business models that are happening right now? Sure. Legally? Sure. So sort of uh, two main models um, that we see, you know, more of a uh, depot model uh, where, uh, you know, essentially, you know, products are aggregated at a non-storefront retail licensed facility. Um, you know, cars will go and, um, you know, pick up um, products on sort of a port per order basis or more of a you know, five orders or less basis. Um, the other model is having that same depot, but then putting um, the maximum amount of product that's sort of legally allowed in that car um, at one time, um, which is $5,000 of product, um, and then going out and sort of being a, a, a true mobile dispensary, right? Once, once you get orders, then you can actually go and, uh, you know, that ends up being uh, more efficient, but you know, delivery, as you guys know more than anyone, just boils down to logistics. Um, and so for some of the larger operators, they actually prefer the first model um, because it seems less inefficient, um, but just because of how they have their sort of systems internally set up, um, that's the best way to A, be compliant, because um, it can be challenging if you've got a, a bunch of product in your car that isn't already sort of allocated to a specific customer. Um, that opens the door to, you know, potentially loose activity, let's call it. Um, and uh, so it really just depends on the specific operator. But those are the two main models. One of our clients wants to know where they could legally actually deliver product to. Does it have to sure. be a residential address that matches the ID of you know the the person or? Great question. Um, so actually, there's there's it, that's that's wide open, which is wonderful for for the opportunity for delivery uh, drivers. So, you know where it's expressly prohibited to, to deliver cannabis to in any way, um, you know, lands owned by the federal government um, or public lands as they're defined. Um, also sort of somewhat obvious um, sensitive use areas we call them, right? Like schools, um, churches, kindergarten places, you know, um, any place that there's, you know, the, the main purpose of that area is religion or, uh, you know, children. Um, those are prohibited from delivering to. Other than that, um, you know, delivery drivers are able to deliver, um, you know, to basically anywhere, right? And so, um, you know, certain uh, clients of ours will only, you know, deliver to uh, residential houses specifically, um, but there's nothing prohibiting you from, you know, being at a concert downtown LA, stepping out, um, you know, and ordering, uh, you know, cannabis to be delivered outside of the club that you're at, nice. right? And so for the most part, um, you know, I think that really allows um, that, that's the intent of the program, right? That's the intent of the delivery program itself. So Nice. Yeah. Okay, here's a good one. Sure. Uh, throw you a curveball. One of our clients is asking, you know, they have several elderly clients who have expired valid government IDs uh, because they don't drive anymore, they don't travel, so they're not renewing it. Um, what do they do? They should definitely ensure that whoever they're delivering to, you know, has, it, has a valid form of identification. Um, so unfortunately, you know, for that client particularly, um, 
you know, they, they need to they need to ensure that they get some valid form of ID. Now, um, you know, it should be a California state ID. Um, you know, that said, um, I'd have to look into whether or not something like a passport would be acceptable. I would imagine it would be, but um, you know, as long as you're over the age of 21, that should be fine. Um, but that's not specific legal advice. <laughs> None of this is legal advice. <laughs> Go get your own lawyers. <laughs>what type of specific type of license do you need to be able to actually deliver? Sure. Um, so you need the, it's a, it's a type of retailer license, right? There's traditional retail brick and mortar, and then there's non-storefront delivery or non-storefront retail, which is the delivery license. So in order to deliver, um, you know, actually to consumers um, directly, you need that non-storefront retail license. Are there any other license types? Like, uh, how about if you have a micro business? Sure. Sure. So absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. So, um, you know, micro business license is sort of three licenses in one. Um, you know, you could also have a micro business license that could be cultivation, distribution, and non-storefront retail, or you could have traditional retail and non-storefront retail and something else like distribution as well. Um, and so there's sort of two ways, you know, you could effectively deliver with either a micro business that has a non-storefront retail license or a separate uh, non-storefront retail license by itself. Got it. So the micro businesses are like a three in one. Correct. So depending on which three you picked, you may or may not be able to deliver. Correct. With a micro business. Yeah, exactly. So if you do have a micro business, the only way you'd be able to legally deliver would be with that non-storefront retail license as one of your three licenses in your micro business. I've been hearing these rumors floating around that the Type Ten business license in LA, which is supposed to be traditionally just you know brick and mortar storefront only, they sure. can actually deliver. Sure, so that's true in cities like LA. Um, if, if the operator could prove that they were performing that activity and could, and could prove they were performing that activity before they actually have obtained um, you know, their license. And so in certain cities, um, you know, municipalities may authorize retailers to also be able to deliver. Um, but again, that's on a sort of city by city basis and that doesn't apply um, statewide. And one thing to um, keep in mind is that even if the city of LA allows you to do that, that's great. At the state level, you'd still need to apply for and obtain a, uh, a traditional retail license and a non-storefront retail license because the state doesn't care you know, as much what the city is allowing you to do. You still need to get that explicit permission you know, from the state for whatever activities you're doing. You know, um, so in that case, you need to get two, uh, both, of the retail, both of the retail licenses. Here's a good one. Yeah. If you have one licensed facility, sure. can you create another hub, quote unquote, elsewhere and use that to store your inventory as well? Great question. This, this, this one I get a lot. Um, this boils down to logistics, right? And the, answer, the short answer is no, you can't do that without being separately licensed in those other municipalities, right? Um, you know, I've had certain clients ask if they could do that in the same city, um, and the answer is potentially depending on what the city allows you to do. You know, a lot of our clients, you know, are looking to, um, on the distribution side or on the delivery side, are looking to capture as much market share as they should right now, very sensible. Um, that said, every time you open up a depot or a stopping point that isn't both locally and state licensed separately, um, right, assuming it's in a different municipality, um, you're exposing yourself to scrutiny um, and that's technically you know wouldn't be a legal um, part of your operation and what do you have to say about people that are using you know or claim to be using somebody else's license 
sure. and are kind of delivering on their behalf? How do, how do you see that playing out? Sure. You can actually effectuate that legally if you paper it the right way. Um, you know, it's we could, just a management agreement, right? And so um, a lot of times I'll see that where, you know, one team will come to us that, you know, really has a skill set to be uh, a good um, retailer, right, and can run traditional cannabis retail, no issue. Um, but they don't have the the skill set or the expertise or the logistical background to run a delivery service. So in that case, if that retailer has, you know, both sets of retail licenses and can legally deliver products, um, you know, they might hire, you know, this other group to actually run their delivery for them. I know this scenario you're talking about. In most cases, um, that's probably not being done above board the, the proper way. Um, but there is a way that you can, like, paper that legally with the blessing um, of the state um, in short, you'd have to file um, some notification forms to the state, just letting them know about, you know, showing them this management agreement and showing them the state wants to vet all the operators and all the people who are, you know, profiting from the sale of legal cannabis and wants to make sure they're not bad actors, right? And so there's a little vetting process there. Probably have to disclose themselves as what we call financial interest holders, right? Which just means you have some part of the a business from a financial or operational perspective. So you can do it, um, but how it's being done a, a lot of times throughout the state right now isn't isn't above board. Okay, so that's at least a silver lining. There's actually right. a way to legally and contractually document that to get so, that job done. Yes, but it doesn't work in the way of like. Hey Jeff, you know, let me just write your license number down. And, oh no, you know, I'll just deliver. <laughs> you know, no, it doesn't work that way. Um, you know, that would be exposing, um, you know, the licensed entity itself to to risk. Um, you know, and, and you know, the the other real, reality is that you know anyone who's delivering on behalf of, um, you know, a licensed entity needs to be an employee, right, of that licensed entity, um, and so that employee also has to have been vetted and approved by the state. Um, themselves. Got it. And if you're licensed in one city, can you deliver into another one? Yes. Um, and sort of that is the, the point of contention right now, you know, for a lot of other cities that, um, you know, kind of want to keep cannabis out of their city altogether. Um, but right now the current rule is that if you have a delivery license, let's say in San Diego or the city of LA, you could technically deliver products all the way up to San Francisco if you wanted to. Um, now, logistically, that's a, that's a whole different challenge, but um, you know, one delivery license allows you to deliver to anywhere throughout the state. Awesome, and so you know, kind of the argument for that is the whole, you know, elderly people, they need their medicine, or Absolutely. You know, disabled people, they need their medicine. Yes. And if you don't allow delivery in your city, you're just stopping the good guys, the, the guys doing it legally from doing it because the bad guys don't care. That's right. the that's that's the that's the perfect point, right? Is that the reality is we to me, you know, we are so far past the tipping point of, of cannabis, you know, needing to be meaningfully implemented throughout the state that if you think banning cannabis is going to prevent cannabis activity, you're wrong. And then you're not getting the benefit of generating any tax revenue from that program. And that just means that the black market will thrive, you know, in your backyard. So it actually has the polar opposite, banning has the polar opposite uh, of the desired effect that, you know, a lot of these cities think it will have. Exactly. So don't be a party pooper. <laughs> so you can deliver into other cities. Yes. But can you have drivers handing off inventory to one another, kind of like away from your licensed facility? Sure. That's that is a no. You know. Um, you know, all of those transactions, sort of specific to um, licensee to uh, employee, has to occur at the facility itself with a manifest. Um, any type of sort of employee to employee activity outside of that depot. 
um, would be would be frowned upon um, at the state level and at the local level. So how much inventory can these drivers actually carry in their vehicle? Sure, currently the rule is uh, $5,000 of products total in a vehicle, um, and I'd have to go and um, sort of double check, but I think the, the rule is that um, for, for the uh, delivery drivers who um, you know go um, and, and pick up as much product as possible, their limit is 3,000 if, if the 3,000 hasn't been allocated um, to specific people. Right, so if you go and pick up product, you're capped at 3,000, which is why we're seeing more people and more operators and more delivery services squeeze in that extra $2,000 of product and make sure that every dollar of that's basically accounted for. So if you're a delivery company, does you know, do you have to actually own you know the vehicles, the, maybe the phones, the GPS devices, so on and so forth? Sure, good question. Um, all of that can be leased. Um, you know, which is wonderful for cost-saving measure. Um, all of that equipment can be leased as long as you know both the phone and GPS are you know actually present and active and valid um, in the car. The GPS being the important thing to just track and monitor um, that activity. But they can be either leased or purchased. Okay, but they do have to belong to the company. It Correct. can't be you know you just using your regular regular oh, car. Oh, abs absolutely. Yeah. Th those. Th so yeah. Let me let me clarify. You can't use your personal vehicle, right? Um, it actually has to be a company vehicle. Um, that's you know either leased or purchased by the company and all that equipment as well. So I want to touch on you know my favorite subject to talk about the BCC. Yes, sir. They're in a lawsuit currently. Yes. With you know a bunch of cities that says what? Essentially, it says that the intention of Prop 64, you know, wasn't being met. It is not currently being met by allowing delivery uh, operators to deliver anywhere throughout the state. Um, the states that are suing the BCC are all states that have banned cannabis activity altogether or almost entirely. Um, and as a result, they don't want delivery companies to be able to deliver products to, um, you know, people who are over the age of consent um, to receive them in their cities. Um, you know, their sort of thought process there was, you know, we should have the right to control whether or not cannabis activity happens um, in our jurisdiction, similar to the way that, um, you know, uh, counties can, uh, can, can be dry counties for alcohol, right, and not have retail. Um, but cannabis, you know, coupled with this new age and time of, you know, on-demand services, right, um, you know, whether it's food delivery or Amazon or cannabis delivery in this case, um, you know, People are used to having, um, you know, that luxury to be able to have things delivered to their door, um, and uh, the reality is that, you know, as this lawsuit proceeds, it's going to be crucial to the success of the BCC's program. Um, given that, to me, um, you know, the delivery licenses are particularly valuable because that's where our our community is now, specific to a consumer on demand group of people, um, and that's where it's going to continue to head. Um, and so I, I, do, I do see this lawsuit as being particularly crucial to sort of see how it fleshes out um, because if, um, you know, if the cities were to be successful, it would really stifle uh, revenue for, most importantly, our clients, right, and the operators of the community, um, and equally importantly for the state to generate meaningful revenue so we can start going after, um, you know, some of the more bad actors because, as you and I know, Frankly, one of the largest demographic of illegal operators in the state is focused on, on the delivery side of things, and there are other platforms that sort of facilitate, you know, um, the process of allowing illegal operators to, to continue to operate. Is there anything we could do as, you know, as general audience to 
kind of help voice our opinion on the matter? Sure. I mean, you know, if you live in one of these municipalities, you know, um, I'm not saying your opinion would go upon deaf ears, but, um, you know, the state, you know, you just have to think about it. The state right now, look, they're not trying to, you know, like harm anyone with this program. They want it to be a success and they're doing the best they can. Um, so if you do live in one of these cities that's trying to ban that activity, you know, voicing your opinion um, certainly wouldn't hurt at the local level. Um, that said, you know, for the most part, these cities are sort of historically, socially, and politically conservative. Um, and as a result, um, it's, it's somewhat, you know, to be expected, um, you know, that that's sort of the, the reaction of these cities. I know for Beverly Hills uh, specifically, um, you know, their sort, of, their sort of comment was, we just want to be able to control who, you know, I, I don't think Beverly Hills will have cannabis banned forever. Um, their just concern is, hey, how can we control, you know, who's delivering products on our street and things like that. The counter to that is that, look, these aren't marked cars, right? These are unmarked delivery vehicles. They don't say cannabis for sale, come, you know, come to this car, right? They're, they're random cars. Um, and law enforcement's entitled to pull people over um, and check to see whether or not they have a valid license on them. That's what, you know, all these legal operators are supposed to have. So to me, that argument is not very strong argument um, and yeah as I mentioned this is going to be a crucial moment in time to see whether or not um, you know frankly the the business opportunity of the state sort of wins over um, over these NIMBY people not in my backyard yeah it's just interesting to watch it could be frustrating at times sure you know just the BCC tends to change their definition of compliant sure every few months sure you know and just kind of recently one thing that went out on subject of brands is you know the they have to put the California symbol on the cartridge itself sure right so yep. what are some of the things that that caused sure I mean that you know for some of our clients was you know a six-figure you know project if not seven figures to address and repair um, that's certainly frustrating as a representative of um, you know our clients and, and knowing that that stifled you know revenue for them immediately um, that said I try to keep sort of an even um, balance of, of trying to understand the state the state's not simply trying to stop you know our clients and our, our and, and and these cannabis businesses from operating it's just still so brand new to them and they're doing the best they can they need, they need to do a better job of listening overall um, because to me that regulation in particular is probably a bit overboard um, that said they are doing the absolute best they can and uh, you know I get it if I'm an operator and a and I've been following the rules and been working with a group like myself to ensure that we're following packaging labeling rules to the T um, and then we're told while our products in market that we have to change something that's going to effectively cost us a ton of money um, I'm rightfully going to be frustrated, but the the react the appropriate reaction to that isn't to get angry or yell at the BCC. It's to continue to educate and inform the BCC on why that's not a sensible measure, right? Because if you're simply you know pointing fingers and yelling, whether it's in this industry or any other world, you're probably not going to get the result you want, right? You have to approach people sensibly with a good argument um, and education as to why that doesn't work. Right, and um, that's where this is all going to be sort of a, a large involved process of time, communication, and you know making sure the thought leaders in our community continue to 
you know, bestow as much information as they can about what makes for a successful and successful program, what's working, what isn't working, right? Um, that communication and that dialogue is going to be crucial to, to continue to ensure uh, that this program will be successful. Yeah, I feel like everybody in, this, in the industry kind of has dealt with that, right? Even us sure. from the software end of things, it's like, yep. hey, the software needs to do this, this, and this. Right. And we spend six months building it to do that, that, and right. that. Right. And then it's like, actually, never mind. Right. <laughs> so. I, I Usually I hesitate to compare cannabis to alcohol because they're so different for so many reasons. Yep. But when I go back in time, you know, when our grandparents, you know, had experienced, you know, alcohol prohibition ending, you know, um, you know, the black market, just like we're seeing in California right now, thrived in the, you know, decade post-prohibition ending, right? And so we have to be mindful that this is a process that, you know, we're, we're a year and a half, you know, almost two years now, you know, into an experiment that, you know, we first started, the, the first cannabis program in California, Prop 215, was 1996, right? And so we're a year and a half into regulating the largest state of the union, 40 million people, with every type of geographical terrain, you know, known to man. Um, this isn't a simple problem to fix. Um, and so, you know, keeping in mind that, you know, it took decades for, you know, sort of alcohol to become a properly highly regulated industry, we're going to see the same thing here. Um, and that can be really challenging and really frustrating for operators, but to me it's really important to know from speaking to the regulators directly um, multiple times. Like Their intent is for this to make this work, and they're doing the best they can, but there are only so many people there, and without tax revenue being generated meaningfully, they can't hire more people, they can't get out there and enforce the illegal activity, and so it's all going to be sort of a, you know, it's all a process, and the more we work together, the more efficient it's gonna it's gonna be and it's gonna roll out more successfully. Yeah, I hear you. I know that's a little idealistic and optimistic to, to say, um, but that's the reality of the situation. For the people that were so patient yeah. until the end, I want to talk about white labeling laws and how sure. they can you know start their own cannabis brand without actually having a license. Sure. And I know that's also one of the things that's kind of flip flop back and forth. Yes. Before, so where does it stand now? Sure. So you know, fortunately, again listening to the consumers or listening to the, the, the operators in the space, um, the state acknowledged that white labeling was going to be inevitable, right? A lot of our clients are sort of white labeling manufacturers or specialists, right? That um, that was their whole business model, right? And so when the rules officially initially came out, um, white labeling wasn't allowed. Now at this point, sort of the same thing as we touched on earlier, um, you know, regarding, um, regarding having someone operate under your license, right? You essentially need um, what we call like an intellectual property licensing agreement. So if you and I build a brand together, right, we're really proud of the logos and the packaging um, that we've come up with. We want to sell vaporizer carts. Awesome. Um, you know, we take that logo and, and packaging, we put that into an LLC or an entity of ours. Um, we find an operator who wants to sell, you know, Art and Jeff's vapes, right? And then um, we might make a, we'll make a royalty based on the sale of those products, right? And so that's all up to negotiation, right? We could make, uh, you know, a royalty on a sale per unit, on a sale uh, based on revenue, um, and, and there's lots of sort of, uh, there's lots of variables in, in these licensing agreements, but the reality is you're getting money, um, you know, based on the, the brand that you've created. Um, and what's required there at the state level is, is relatively simple. It's, it's that agreement along with notifying the state that there's another financial interest holder in their license. 
Now, I've seen a, I've seen a couple operators get hung up on that because they think that means they're telling the state that we have a new owner or we have a new equity participant. That's not it at all. You can be a financial interest holder and not actually own any equity, you know, in that business at all. It's just you're generate you're you know we as the the brand right is. Um, is benefiting from the sale of cannabis products and we have to be disclosed to make sure we're not bad people. Okay, got yeah. it. So so there is a legal way to do it. Yes. And the BCC did listen to us. Yes. See, so, so that's a it's a great that's a great example of how, you know, I would say, you know, during that time when the sort of state was figuring out whether whether or not they were going to allow white labeling, you know, I probably personally sent, you know, 15 emails to the state, right, on behalf of clients, right? And then had the had our clients do the same thing. Um, and the state listened, right? And so that's a perfect example of we're coming together, educating, helping the state understand this isn't people who are trying to, you know, start illegal brands and benefit, you know, benefit illegally, right, from the license program. These are just groups that are, are maybe a little smaller, don't have the $250,000 they need to get their own license, um, and maybe have a smaller brand that they only want to do, you know, $50,000, $60,000 of revenue with. They should be able to participate as well, and there should be a mechanism for them to do that, and fortunately there is. One last question that I have to ask, sure. that I love to ask. If Lori Ajax was in the room right now, what would you tell her? I would start off by saying thank you. Um, she's extremely hardworking. She's a, a wonderful person to talk to. She's doing her best, right? She comes from the alcohol and beverage community and has sort of been thrown into this position of being expected to know as much as people who've been operating in this space for decades in some cases, right? Um, and so she's absolutely doing her best. I would tell her to continue to do as, as good a job as she can getting out there and listening to the operators, right? And listening to, um, you know, groups like ourselves when we have sort of educated, informative inquiries that are sort of backed by substantive information, right? I would tell her to not worry so much about the naysayers who are saying this is a failure. This is such a monumental, and it's, it's not a failure, but it's, it's, it's been slow to get started, right? They've sort of, they fell short of their tax revenue goals um, last year, um, and it's still gonna take some time. Um, and so I would just tell her to uh, sort of bear, you know, keep, keep on keeping on uh, to some extent, and uh, you know, try to continue to get as educated as she can on the space, um, and that I know it's, uh, it's certainly not a job that I'm envious that she has. You know, it's a, it's a really difficult position to be in. Um, and, and yeah, so just, just keep listening and just keep grinding and, and I think we'll be okay. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Cool, man, well that brings us to a wrap. Thanks awesome. so much. Why don't you go ahead, you know, look right into the camera. Sure. Plug what you need to plug. I know you have some good news you want to share as well. Absolutely, yeah. So uh, excited to announce that, uh, you know, effective right now, um, you know, we're gonna be joining Vicente Cedarberg, who is uh, the nation's premier uh, cannabis and hemp powerhouse. Um, you know, Frontera is really going to be, be bringing a sort of California-focused cachet um, to Vicente Cedarberg's already existing strong California practice. Um, we will now have offices um, throughout the country, um, Los Angeles, Denver, Boston, New York City, and Jacksonville. Um, and for our clients and for our perspective, we really viewed this as a necessary pivot um, to continue to keep up with the growth and the pace of this industry. Um, so we're going from eight lawyers here at Frontera to 60 plus lawyers at Vicente Cedarburg. Um, you know, we're growing our staff from five to 35 and um, we're gonna have a, you know, we have a separate uh, hemp division that's 25 people strong. Um, and I'm gonna be really focused on sort of continuing to bridge the entertainment and cannabis worlds um, in Los Angeles as a partner um, at that office. Nice, man, congrats. Thank you so much. And as always, my name is Art. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Art. 
And for everything that we discussed today, you know, Jeff and his partners have given us uh, you know, a lot of good information that we're going to include in a bundle, as well as future Connecting Cannabis episodes. Make sure to go to webjoint.com forward slash blog, put in your email, sign up for our mailing list, and you'll get it all in your inbox. Until next time, I'll see you guys later.